This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So the topic for tonight's talk is impermanence. And I've titled this talk, Beyond the Rise and Fall of Things That Change. And I'd like to begin with a verse from the Diamond Sutta, which says, Thus should one think of this fleeting world, like a star at dawn, a bubble on a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, dew on a blade of grass, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a mirage, and a dream. They're very ephemeral images, fleeting images. In Buddhist tradition, a great deal of emphasis is placed on, the, on impermanence. And in fact, this is the real emphasis of what we observe in insight meditation practices. The primary insight we have is that things change. That might seem obvious to you, but it's incredibly profound. Seeing impermanence is not considered some kind of strange, esoteric, mystical experience that's reserved for only hermits who are hanging out in Himalayan caves. It's available to all of us right now in anything that we're doing, in any perception, we can notice how things change. We just have to pay attention, be mindful, and direct our attention to this characteristic of impermanence. Wherever we look, everything is changing. Sensations, sounds, sights, tastes, thoughts, moods, emotions. All of our experience, all of our perceptions are constantly changing. What did you notice changing today? What did you actually recognize? It's changing. It's important to let that recognition be very vivid, even in ordinary daily life, because when we don't see the impermanence of things, we tend to grasp a hold of them. We tend to cling to them. We tend to want to make them last. We tend to become attached and identified with them. And then we suffer. Because they're changing anyway. So what did you notice changing? I'd just like to hear a few things that you really registered. It's changing. Okay, great. So noticing in the tightness of the shoe and the changing sensations, you could feel temperature changing, heat to cold, cold to heat, pressure, tingling. Could you really feel sensations changing? When we really know that sensations change, then we're not going to be so afraid of a single moment of sensation, even a strong sensation, because we know that it changes. But you might need to get your shoes stretched out. (laughs) What else did you notice changing? 
Moods. Yes, do you have the same mood that you had when you were having your breakfast? No? Well, did you have the same mood now that you had that you had when you were driving on the freeway to get here? No? Is your mood the same right now as it was halfway through the meditation session? Is your mood ever the same from one hour to the next, from one day to the next, from one minute to the next, from one second to the next? I mean, it's amazing how our moods change, and yet we sometimes forget that. People tell me all the time, I am so mad today. Likely they've been mad, like anger has like been the experience the entire day. I don't even think it's possible for the mind to experience anger that consistently. I mean, when do we do anything that consistently? It's constantly changing when we bother to look. Our moods change. Yeah, that's a great one. What else have you noticed changing? The year. We're in a new year. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, and sometimes we have to write a different, a different year down. We have to change habits. Yeah. Lots of things change. Did you notice the weather changing? Temperature changing? Have you noticed any of your views changing? your beliefs, your opinions, your ideas, something you thought to be true or one way turned out another way. It's amazing how many things change. Hopefully, it's just about everything. As we become interested in observing change during our meditation practice, we find that we can observe impermanence as it occurs through any sense door, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or mind door processes, the mental experiences. All of these offer us opportunities to observe change. So it means we don't have to simply sit with our eyes closed and only experience the changing sensations from the in-breath to the out-breath. We can have this great insight into impermanence throughout our days in any kind of activity. We can see impermanence in so many places because nothing stays the same. Even the earth itself changes. How many people have been through a California earthquake? I grew up here. I can't even count how many I felt. <laughs> you know, it's, if, if even the earth is so impermanent that, you know, we like to think of it as solid, right? How many earthquakes do you have to be through in before you really feel like, you know, maybe it's actually moving. <laughs> you know, maybe it's not as solid as we think. And you can get a vivid sense of it. Of course, scientists know it's not solid. Scientists know it's not fixed, it's not static. But sometimes we don't look carefully enough or we forget. When we look at anything, like under one of those really powerful microscopes, we'll start to see that it's not solid and it's not fixed and it's not stable. It's actually constantly changing. You look at a subatomic level and you don't find like static, just like fixed little, 
you know, even in, in school there were those little dots with little dots roaming around them, you know, protons and electrons and those sorts of things. Moving, dynamic processes. It's interesting to consider our perception because we perceive things changing. I think it's kind of interesting just to watch nature. Um, have you ever seen a little mouse go to a corner or, or blend, try and blend into something and then just stay really, really still? Because it, it, if it's not moving, it might not be visible to its predator. Because naturally what we notice is we notice change. <laughs> and things changing. It sparks. It sp- can spark our perception. When we're sitting like in a, um, in a pool of water, have you ever had the experience of just sitting there very still and the water is very still, maybe in a swimming pool where you're just sort of sitting there? And you don't even feel the water after a while until you move. And then you can feel the temperatures changing, the pressure changing. Or the clothes that you're wearing. Have you been aware of the sensations of your clothes throughout the day? The weight of them, the texture of them? Usually, sometimes we feel it when we bring our attention to it. It's there to feel. But often we're not even aware of it until we start to move in them. And then... Conscious of it or not, it may be that what we're actually perceiving is change, contrasts, differences. So insight meditation asks us to notice this fact. It puts the spotlight on impermanence so that we can observe impermanence as the arising and passing of things, but we can also observe the inconstancy of things, how they change how they increase, how they decrease. And we can have this ins- these insights into impermanence be so vivid that, we s- that it has the effect of registering for us that we cannot cling to anything in this world. Sure, we can know experience. We can experience experience. We can appreciate experience. But we cannot cling to anything in this world. If we don't recognize things changing or if we're uncomfortable with change, uncomfortable with the way things decay or die, slip away, are lost, break, shift, then we might be uncomfortable as we face our death. We might be uncomfortable when pleasure moves to pain, when pain moves to pleasure. Of course we might be physically uncomfortable when we're in pain, but I mean emotionally uncomfortable. I mean agitated in mind, disturbed as though something is wrong. It's very different to be able to experience the changes of the body in pain and in death, knowing that it's the nature of the body. That's a very different relationship to that, those experiences of aging, illness, and death than when we don't know, when we won't recognize the inevitability of change. 
When things are changing, we can realize that nothing can give us lasting happiness, lasting satisfaction. Not because there's no sources of sensual pleasure in the world. There are many beautiful things, many very pleasant things. But they're changing, so they can't be the source of lasting satisfaction. It means there's no security for our happiness if we're looking in the realm of sensual experiences. Is that because everything's threatening? No, it's just because everything's changing. So we have to find a way then to live with this profound insecurity, to live in joy as things are changing. We investigate our experience so that we can be in relationship to the truth of things and not be deceived into taking what's impermanent to be permanent or what's unreal to be real and to not assume that what's really unsatisfactory could be a basis for our happiness. If we're not comfortable or at ease with this basic uncertainty, then we might tend to grasp a hold of things to try to gain a semblance of security. Grasping views and opinions of how we think things should be. Becoming attached to our familiar habits and routines and reinforcing those patterns again and again. Craving confirmation and approval from others so that we reinforce a particular sense of who we are in the world, our identities. The problem is that all of these attempts to gain security are confounded by the simple fact, once again, that everything changes. It doesn't work. The more we cling, the more we grasp, the more we create an inner tension, the more we're out of alignment with the basic simple fact that everything changes. Seeing impermanence deeply and consistently is an invitation to live alive and aware and in response to the way things actually are so that we can live in this world free from grasping, free from clinging, at ease with this basic truth and understanding of impermanence. In insight meditation, we look for this characteristic of change. We don't only notice sensations of the body or the breath and just recognize, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, I'm sitting, I'm feeling hardness, I'm feeling heat. But we recognize how all the sensations that we're observing are changing. We observe not only how the sensations are changing, but we observe how the quality of mind that is perceiving it, how to know something, we are engaged in a process of cha- that is changing. Our perception is changing. The feelings are changing. Consciousness is changing. Contact, intention, attention are all changing. 
and all the qualities of mind and mood, the stuff that flavors the mind, you know, the feeling of sometimes we're sluggish, sometimes we're energetic, sometimes the mind feels flexible and malleable, and sometimes it feels kind of bewildered and, and rigid, all changing. Sometimes we can see a kind of inconstancy to things, the increasing, the decreasing, the expanding, the contracting. Sometimes we can see how things are impermanent in the sense that they arise, they pass, they stop, they start. What can we learn about change? Wisdom is about with the wisdom of impermanence is particularly important because if we don't see the impermanence of things, we're very often deluding ourselves into taking, into misperceiving what is actually impermanent, to be permanent. And then it's a very small step to think, ah, if I could just get this pleasant thing, I'll be happy. And if I could just get rid of that unpleasant thing, I'll be happy. We might think that we could be happy if that particular experience just lasted longer. Or if we had more money, if we had a house in the country, if we had a better seat to meditate on, if our health was better, if we had ice cream for dessert, you know, whatever it might be, we forget that the ice cream melts. We think we'll be happy if we get it. And so we go through life trying to grasp a hold of the pleasant and push away the unpleasant, finding ourselves having to manipulate our experience day in and day out and never actually succeed because things keep changing. One of the primary misperceptions that we have as human beings and one of the aspects of delusion that's identified in the Buddhist tradition. Delusion is a big feature. Greed, hate, and delusion. All unwholesome states get categorized into the greed bucket, the hate bucket, and the delusion bucket. And I tell you, the delusion bucket is big. (laughs) and deep, because greed and hate float in it. (laughs) But one of the primary delusions is the delusion of not seeing impermanence. Classically, vipassana, which is the Pali term for insight, insight meditation, these vipassana practices or insight meditation practices, which are the mindfulness-based practices, Primarily, they are oriented toward observing three basic characteristics of experience. The impermanence, what's called the unsatisfactoriness of experiences, or the emptiness or not-self characteristic of experience. And we'll be exploring these in these three topics in this series. The Pali terms are anicca, for impermanence, dukkha, for unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, for not-self. What's interesting, I think, about 
the vipassana practices is the insight practice doesn't just tackle each particular desire, each particular unwholesome stage, each particular personal pattern individually. Sure, we notice them every time they arise and we deal with them as we can moment by moment. But we don't have to come to a a resolution with each and every issue that arises in our lives. So what we can notice, though, is universal patterns. Sure, we learn things about a lot of the specific patterns, so there are specific insights, but there are also universal insights. And Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta are the primary universal insights because all things (laughs) change. Every experience of the body and every experience of the mind is changing. It may sound a bit abstract, but when mindfulness is developed and refined, we will be able to very clearly and carefully observe the arising and passing away of of any contact with the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind, and the arising and passing away of the feeling and the arising and passing away of the way we perceive it, and the arising and passing away of the consciousness that knows it, and the quality of mind that is knowing it. So there's a recognition that not only is the material world changing, but our way of perceiving it is changing. Our experience of it is changing. Our understanding and knowing of it is changing. So all things are anicca, dukkha, and anatta. This was a very significant um, understanding and, and initial inspiration for some of the great disciples of the Buddha to undertake their practice, to begin to live their holy life. And it's said that two of the great disciples of the Buddha, Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahamogalana, were good friends. I think they were cousins And they grew up together very close uh, prior to, of course, their ordination and awakening. And as young men, they were uh, um, hanging out at this festival where there were athletic events and little animal shows and song and music and dance and various kinds of of exhibitions and, and athletic shows. And they enjoyed it the first day. They enjoyed it the second day. And it said after a couple of days, they started to realize that, you know, everything and everyone that they're seeing perform these incredible feats and these entertaining events. We're all going to die. Now, that might sound a bit depressing, but it wasn't actually depressing for them. It was sobering. It was sobering. It was kind of uh, surprising to them, and it made them realize that happiness can never be found in transient pleasures. It's not the location to find lasting happiness, simply because they change. Similarly, this insight into impermanence was a significant one for the Buddha himself. Prior to his awakening, he very keenly felt the transience of things. And he, it said he reflected, saying, thinking, 
myself being subject to change, subject to birth and death, how shall I ever find happiness and peace through things that are also subject to change, to birth and to death? So this was a life-changing understanding for these men. And it led to their undertaking of the holy life. It led to their quest, their search for awakening. What happens when we stop looking for our happiness in changing experiences of body and mind? Perhaps we might then look for peace, not peace and happiness, not in the, all the things that change, but look towards something that doesn't change. I've already suggested that every experience of mind changes, every experience of perception, every experience of matter, of body, even the earth itself changes. So what doesn't change? In the Buddhist tradition, the changeless is called the deathless element, awakening, enlightenment, nibbana. Peace, the supreme happiness, the supreme security from bondage, freedom, release. There's a whole bunch of names. This occurs when one finally stops clinging to anything that is changing. It occurs out of the experience of non-grasping, non-attachment. That's when it's possible to realize the state of peace, Nibbana. So we can look beyond the rise and fall of things that change and be inspired by this possibility to not be seduced again and again into taking something that's impermanent to be permanent, something as, that's impermanent to be a basis for our happiness. We can turn our attention to discover what is changeless, what is not conditioned by any movement of arising, of passing away, or of change. To do this, though, we must first thoroughly know the conditioned. We must know things as they arise, as they pass, as they persist, as they cease. We must look so carefully, so consistently, so thoroughly that we have no delusion whatsoever about anything relating to the senses. The body, the mind, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, free from delusion. We look directly at any experience. We become mindful of any experience, and we see it arising and passing away so that we know impermanence without any doubt. Don't believe me that everything changes. You don't have to believe anything that I say, but hopefully... I've suggested that you might notice this yourself and that in the next weeks, in the next months, you keep a lookout. Oh, every day, 
Notice things changing. Notice that they're changing. Notice your relationship to things changing. Develop the capacity to be at ease with this basic fundamental truth of change. When we directly and profoundly understand impermanence, we'll stop depending upon experiences for our happiness. And when we're not seeking more experiences to satisfy and gratify us, our attention may turn away from a habitual fascination with various objects and perceptions, away from the conditioned realm of arisings and passings, away from dependence upon anything that could be conceived of, and away from this habitual attraction to stimulus to the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and even stimulus to the mind. We might discover what is untouched by change as we seek what is peaceful, what is sublime, the release of Nibbana. But usually people are not very interested in Nibbana, not only because who knows what it is, but because we're fascinated with other things. We're fascinated with the arising and the things that arise and the things that pass away. We're fascinated with the transient things. And we rarely ever consider the possibility of experiencing something beyond that realm. Usually we get so involved in trying to make the things that we like last longer and the things that we dislike go away sooner that we have no time left to ponder anything else. It is helpful to understand what has the power to pull us again and again into desiring things that are transient. Because the seductive power is not in the thing itself. Things seduce us, sights seduce us, tastes seduce us, thoughts and moods seduce us simply because we keep forgetting that they are changing. They are ephemeral. We don't need to be attached to them. We don't need to be drawn into them. We don't need to push them away. We don't need to try and hold on to them. They are just changing. And as we become mindful of them, we become mindful of them when they are present. We know them fully. And we know them as they pass away, free from grasping. Things bind us only when we are deceived by their nature, only when we think we can be happy if we get it. So once we stop busying ourselves by manipulating the conditioned to conform to our preferences, the basic more of what I like and less of what I don't like, then we free up our energy to investigate this process of how things are known, of how we interact with the world, of how we relate to life. We can check anything we experience and see, is it impermanent? Does it arise? Does it pass away? And when insight is strong, the mind will be clear. It'll be free from attachment. It'll be unaffected 
though it will be mindful of, nevertheless it will be unaffected by the passing show of all transient phenomena, pleasant or unpleasant. The mind will be remain balanced in the knowing of it. There might be a clear, luminous, and profound knowing. We might have a realization of something deeply peaceful and equanimous as experience continues to arise and pass away. The characteristics of mental and material things are that they are impermanent, they are unsatisfactory. And they are not self. We investigate so that we know our lived experiences, the experience of the senses. We know all that is known from a point of view that is simply undeceived. But we can't stop with mere clarity, not even rest in sublime equanimity, not even the equanimity towards all mind and matter. I spent a number of years practicing with a Hindu teacher in India. His name was H.W.L. Punja. And it was a delightful period of my life in the 1990s. And he used to tell many stories. In his youth, mother was a devotee of Krishna. And so he learned as a child to worship Krishna. And he was a very spiritual, devoted, lots of love kind of practitioner. And he had such a strong relationship with this God, Krishna, that he found himself playing with Krishna, as though Krishna appeared to him and they would play together. And so Punjaji was staying in southern India. He had a job near um, in that area. And he connected with a guru, a, a, a great saint, actually, a great saint, Ramana Maharshi in Tiruvannamalai. And Ramana Maharshi asked him, you know, one day they, he would come in the evening to, the, to, to go to the ashram and see Ramana Maharshi. And one day Ramana Maharshi asked him what he'd been doing all day. And he said that he had been playing with Krishna, which is kind of cool, you know, to play with your God. You know, that's not a, you know, that's not a, a minor achievement. <laughs> and, and Ramana just said, that's nice. And, but then he said, but is Krishna here now? And Punjaji said, no. And Ramana said to him, what appears and disappears is not eternal and is not truth. What does not appear and disappear? And the way Punjaji tells the story when this when he heard this question, that was basically when his mind opened and he had a transformative experience. So even when we, when we see that even the highest thing, even what we're the most devoted to, even what was so sublime and dear to us, for him in his youth, it was his relationship to Krishna. 
when even that is impermanent. (laughs) What appears and disappears is not eternal and is not truth. What does not appear or disappear? Even the very most beautiful and subtle spiritual experiences can deceive us if we don't realize they're characteristic of impermanence. Even insight knowledge that we develop through insight meditation, even insight knowledge must be seen as it actually is, which is impermanent. (laughs) Even our insights, they arise and pass away. They depend upon a cognitive process that our knowing are perceiving the quality of mind and all the mental factors that go into enabling us to be conscious of anything. All of this is impermanent. The Buddha Dhamma rigorously investigates all conditioned phenomena, even our insights, with such great emphasis on seeing impermanence. Why? Because by observing impermanence, we might experience Dispassion, non-attachment, non-grasping, non-clinging, liberation, release. The Pali phrase, sabe dhamma anicca, sabe dhamma anicca, very commonly quoted, very commonly chanted. It basically means all conditioned things are impermanent. Sabe, Dhamma, Anicca. From the Dhammapada it says, all conditioned things are impermanent. When one sees this with wisdom, one turns away from suffering. All conditioned things are unsatisfactory. When one sees this with wisdom, one turns away from suffering. All conditioned things are not self. When one sees this with wisdom, one turns away from suffering. So I'd like to invite any comments, questions, discussion. So the question is, is greed, hate, and delusion, how are they referred to as a group? We called them in our series poisons, didn't we? There's actually a lot of terms for them. I rather like the phrase, the three poisons, as an identification of the... But, but they basically refers to the three roots of all unwholesome states. So they're the root tendencies of greed, hate, and delusion. They're the roots of defilements, and defilements is kilesa. When we look at the and them as underlying tendencies, we might call them anusayas because that refers to the underlying tendency. But when you see the list, I think poison is probably the most common lit reference. Please. You know, so I think it's a good question to how do we reconcile the profound love and the constancy of love for our children with impermanence, and I think you said it for yourself, as long as you're alive, but that won't always be the case. And there are other conditions other than death 
that could inhibit that capacity to love. Mental illness would be a good would be a good option. Um, anything of our experience. Now, when you go into like looking at love as a transcendent love, you're ta- when you ask about children, you're asking about relational love. I put that in the impermanent category. But we could look at love as a transcendent love and look at it as something that is not dependent upon the conditions of one being and the conditions of another. And then we might be able to, to understand that kind of immeasurable, expansive love in another way. We could take that conversation differently. But I think as long as we're talking about relational love, it, it may be beautiful, very beautiful, and the most wonderful thing that you, could, you can give to your children. But nevertheless, it's impermanent. It depends upon conditions. Yeah, and, and that can be cherished, it can be valued, it can be honored without needing to feel that it is something that we have to grasp a hold of as though, it will, as though it's permanent. There's a difference. Just because it's impermanent doesn't mean we discard it. It just means it's conditioned. It arises due to causes and conditions. But it must be honored and nurtured, yeah. Also, anything that grows, that's change, that's impermanent. So even beautiful, wholesome, wonderful qualities, the fact that we can cultivate them, the fact that they grow, they strengthen, makes them impermanent. Or I shows them as impermanent, yeah. Okay. Other comments, questions? Can you talk about forgetting? <laughs> forgetting. <laughs> like a, but almost like a distinction, like as part of this discourse, there's these different distinctions, and I, you know, for me, it's easily forgotten. So how does that tie, fit in with this? You know, in a, you know what I'm saying? Like in a more profound way than just, oh, you know, I'm forgetting what you're saying or well, what, I, what I heard tonight. I'm not sure what I could say that's more prof- that's um, profound in that, but I do think that sometimes we we think because there's a lecture or a talk that we're supposed to remember it, and that's not the way I feel about Dhamma talks. I feel like we can give our attention and our presence, you know, a whole heart, whole mind, whole attention, whole presence, but we can trust that maybe something touches us and it doesn't need to touch the brain the mind it doesn't need to be a concept that we memorize it doesn't mean to, if i'm hoping that you'll enjoy this and come to all the sessions and it's only a three-part list so it's probably a pretty good chance that most of you will learn the three characteristics by the end anicca dukkha and anatta impermanence unsatisfactoriness and not self but it's not a requirement <laughs> And it'll get more challenging when you come to some of the longer lists, the seven factors of enlightenment, the eightfold path. It's not always so easy to remember all of them. And that kind of thing doesn't matter. 
I enjoy the study, and so I like to put in a little bit of the intellectual perspectives. Sometimes I'll quote from suttas and do things like that. But you don't have to memorize or remember or anything of those. But maybe something registered, like maybe just the thought, hmm, things change. And that would be quite enough. Then what's even more interesting to me is how can we remember that if we want to, say, work with something, say, work with impermanence this week, how can we remember to notice that? It's like, how do we remember to be mindful? How do we remember to be aware? How do we remember to meet our experience as, it's, as it is instead of as we want it to be? Because that's basically what mindfulness is about. It's about an unbi- cultivating an unbiased capacity to observe our experience instead of just going about life you know wanting more of this and wanting less of that and trying to get this and get that and lost in a story of of manipulating experience when we're mindful we are observing what actually is and we will see that whatever that is it's changing and so how do we remember to be mindful of change That's a really good question. (laughs) Some ideas, please. How do we remember to be mindful of change? How How will you remember this week to be mindful that things are changing? What could you do to strengthen that possibility? Um, thank you, Shyla. I, I think that I get reminded how things change when I get stuck, what feels like stuck in a place of pain around ah. something, and it feels like it's going to last forever, right? And and I then I automatically, since I've been hearing the teachers for a little while, remember, okay, you know, this is not going to last forever. Can I walk through this moment, even if I know it's going to be an hour, you know, an hour? But can I can I walk through the hour? And and so that's a place where it's why when I get, get stuck in something that's painfully permanent, then the, it's harder though when it's pleasurable, right? And we want it to last forever. I don't think about change, unless yeah. unless I get into fear around it. But that's kind of how I get triggered into the remembrance of yeah, change. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, very nice. It's true pain, and we can remember that. You know, I think any time we have a, a reaction, maybe emotionally. We can remind ourselves, oh, you know, I wonder if I'm going to be feeling this in five minutes. And actually look and see in five minutes if we're feeling the same thing. And then say, hmm, scratch our head. It changed. So that you actually used your, you, you, you used your wisdom to tell yourself, <laughs> to talk yourself down from a reaction. A fear because you know it's changing. What else do you do? To, what else can you do this week to notice change? I think we could each pick one thing that would be kind of a trigger something. You know, maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's the number of times you take on and off a sweater. Maybe it's something. You could pick, pick something that just keeps reminding you that sensations or feelings or thoughts or moods are changing. But I also think it's really important to look at how our views and opinions are changing because people get so fixated 
on their views and opinions and what they think. And they don't bother to notice that maybe five years before they had a different view or opinion about that same thing. And which one was right? <laughs> I have a timer on my phone, oh. and it, it's a singing bowl sound. And I was using it for mindfulness, but I use it for a lot of different things. So I could use it to remind me to notice how things change. Mm. Mm-hmm. Nice. Just have a sense of curiosity about what can I see, what can I learn. And uh, I, I kind of get excited by learning something new, so that's the inspiration. And just so that's what, how I would remember. Yeah. Because there's a possibility I'd see something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's beautiful. To really use the power of curiosity. What a delightful joy to to want to keep noticing things, especially something as obvious as this. Because how many people didn't know that things changed before you walked in the room? (laughs) And that's one of the most wonderful things about insight meditation, is these are not unusual things, but we forget them. Day in and day out, we're forgetting the most obvious things. And that's what delusion is about. Letting go of the the misperceptions, uh, dissolving the misperceptions so that we see the obvious instead of keep seeing things from that distorted view of desire, aversion, and self-interest. Let's end with just a couple of minutes of, of meditation just to close in silence. You might also be observing change. May all beings be happy, peaceful, and at ease. May it be a joyful new year for all.